This is Mary Smigelski. I'm here with my partner, Josh Cantro, co-chair of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Group at Lewis Brisbois. And we are here for our next episode of the BIPA Radar. Josh and I are excited today to welcome our first special guest star, our partner, George Manos, who is going to discuss insurance coverage issues. George, say hello. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Um, I think as your first uh, special guest. I'm going to predict that I'm going to be your best special guest too. Let's just say that in advance. And we have no doubt about that whatsoever. <laughs> because insurance is so interesting by itself, you know, intrinsically. Uh, so I'm sure there won't be any any reason not to have this be uh, one of your highest rated uh, podcasts. Well, I, I find it riveting personally. There's <laughs> nothing I can get more of than insurance coverage. Let's get into it. Having been partners with George for 10 years, he has a great way of making insurance interesting. I've seen you present at industry seminars, so I feel very confident that this discussion will be interesting for the audience. Well, I appreciate that. Coverage is my life. Um, I have not been able to sell the um, reality series that I've been trying to uh, put together. But uh, other than that, um, um, I appreciate your comments and we'll see what we can do today. So where are we going to start, gentlemen? In the prior episode, we discussed these two recent Illinois Supreme Court decisions and the impact they may have on a liability standpoint. What is your reaction from a coverage standpoint? So I guess, first of all, and we're speaking, of course, about the uh, the Tim's decision that dealt with the, uh, the statute of limitations that would be applicable to BIPA claims, which is, has been hotly awaited for some time. Um, and then quickly after that, the Supreme Court came down with the uh, White Castle decision, which has caused a, a big ripple um, and which has uh, been very interesting. So, yeah, I'm happy to, uh, to talk about both. Um, from an insurance coverage standpoint, Tim's is probably more uh, relevant in that it deals with how far back uh, these claims can be uh, brought, which, of course, implicates how far back insurance coverage is potentially implicated. I know there were um, a number of carriers, uh, well, pretty much all the carriers that write policies that are uh, you know, potentially in play for BIPA were waiting to see whether it was going to be one year or five years. Um, a lot of people were hoping it was going to be one year. I know that that's true not only for the insurance industry, but obviously for the potential defendants in these, uh, in these claims. So where that is important from a coverage standpoint is now for purposes of which policies are implicated, uh, particularly uh, occurrence policies, since those are the ones that you look back retrospectively to being applicable. It definitely is important because it now means that insurance policies that were issued, uh, you know, two, three, four, five years prior to when the offense took place are now in play, which is important for purposes of defending the claims, uh, important for purposes of there being potential exposure under those policies. And as I think we'll get to a little bit later, important too, for the fact that it will promote additional litigation, not just the actual suits that are brought seeking BIPA uh, damages, but the lawsuits that are typically filed by insurance companies or insureds seeking a declaration of whether there is any coverage. Now you've got more policies in play, more policy years, which means there are more potential policies that are implicated by these claims, which means you've got a higher probability of declaratory judgment actions being filed, seeking the court's uh, ruling on whether or not those policies apply to these BIPA claims. So, George, does that mean there have been changes in these policies over the years? 
Well, there have been some changes, but like anything else, there's always a lag between when the coverages are issued and when new risks and new losses that weren't necessarily anticipated come up. Policies that are occurrence-based, you know, for, for the here and now, it really doesn't matter if they've changed a lot because the policies we're talking about were issued at least five years back, right? I mean, depending upon when the alleged uh, losses took place and when these lawsuits were initiated. There have been some changes in policy language that are relevant to coverage issues and which have come out in recent uh, court decisions. But I think that, like anything, you're going to see the insurance industry react to not just the, the fact that we've had this proliferation of BIPA lawsuits since early 2019, um, but also in light of these two recent decisions, and in particular, the Tim's decision. Can you define occurrence policy? I can. I don't remember if that was part of what you're compensating me for, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so there's generally, for purposes of third-party liability claims, in other words, claims being brought by one party against another, the party that's being uh, sued or against whom the claim is being made, being the one that's potentially insured, there's two generally two types of policies, occurrence and claims made. Occurrence policies focus on when the actual conduct or act or event that implicates coverage takes place. So an occurrence-based policy could have been issued in some instances, in other contexts, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and still be you know, potentially in play now, depending upon when the, the um, actual event took place. That's in contrast to claims made coverage, where the focus is not on when the event or conduct um, took place or act, but when the claim is actually made. In that instance, the only policies that are really potentially in play are the ones where the claim is made and more often than not reported to the insurance company. It doesn't really matter when the act took place, except to the extent that even those policies have what's called a retroactive date, which is when um, the policy says we're only going to go this far back with respect to potential acts, errors, omissions, or conduct or events. Would it be fair to say that professional liability policies, employment practices liability policies, and cyber policies are generally claims made? I would agree. And, and for purposes of BIPA, too, I think uh, a lot of the DNO policies are as well, which is another area that's kind of a subset of professional liability to some extent, but they are standalone coverages. But yes, those would be typically claims made. Would occurrence policies be the commercial general liability policies? Yeah, generally, although there are instances where some GL coverage, GL, of course, being short for general liability, if they are an add-on coverage or they're part of a package policy, there are some instances where even GL coverage can be claims made, but typically it's uh, occurrence-based. That's correct. So, George, does general liability insurance cover BIPA claims? I know that there was a case that was up before the court, and we have heard a lot on the defense side, certainly from the plaintiff's source, saying, oh, well, they've got general liability insurance. It must cover BIPA. Yeah, I'd be happy to, because this is an area that has really um, burgeoned in the last uh, year and a half, two years, where there's been a lot of case law that's come down. Like anything else, uh, it's not always uh, clear, and there have been divisions in the courts depending upon when the decision came down and certain policy language, et cetera. But yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that. First of all, commercial general liability coverage typically applies in two instances. Coverage A is for bodily injury or property damage, and coverage B is for personal injury and advertising injury. For purposes of BIPA, really it's coverage B and personal injury that is potentially relevant. There's really not bodily injury claims that are implicated by this. There's really not uh, property damage and 
advertising injury is enumerated offenses that are covered are similar to personal injury, but really it's the personal injury coverage. And in particular, the fact that most policies actually list what enumerated offenses are covered under the PI side. And oftentimes that includes, and more often than not, things like invasions of privacy and so forth. And that's where there has been a push in recent uh, years for coverage litigation that has resulted from these BIPA claims being brought and insured tendering those claims to their GL carriers. Why is there coverage litigation? What is it about Illinois that leads to more coverage litigation than other states? Generally to say, why is there more coverage litigation? Um, And that's because we have the Attorney Full Employment Act that uh, makes sure that lawyers have things to do. Um, That's a joke, and I'm only kidding. we got to bring you on more often just for the humor. That's true. In fact, I'm surprised there already isn't an Attorney Full Employment Act. Um, But you are correct. There is an aspect of Illinois law that is really unique to the state as opposed to other states, which really lends itself to a lot of these declaratory judgment filings. And let me first talk a little bit about that because maybe not everybody in the audience is familiar with what a declaratory judgment action is or a deck action or a DJ is the uh, short form for those. Declaratory judgment actions are a statutorily provided for ability to go into court and literally get an advisory opinion. Typically, you can't do that. I mean, in most instances, you have to have a, a loss or at least a claim for a loss, a claim for damages, a claim for something. Even equitable remedies here in Cook County anyway are, are governed specifically in, in our chancery court as opposed to our general law division. Even equitable claims normally require some type of damage or loss. Declaratory judgment actions are unique in that they don't require that to already be a fixed liability or a fixed actual loss. Instead, the idea behind them is you go into the court and you say, okay, we've got this loss, this claim, uh, this lawsuit, and we have this insurance policy. And depending on who's bringing the suit, we're either asking you to agree with us that there is coverage or we're at would be the policyholders that would argue that. And then, of course, coverage lawyers who are representing the insurance companies are saying, judge, we believe that this is not covered and we want you to agree with us that it's not. There are some limitations to the timing of bringing something like that and how far you can actually get a a, a court to give an opinion, depending upon what the stage of the underlying claim or lawsuit is in. More often than not, the path of lesser resistance to getting a determination has to do with the duty to defend. And the duty to defend is a big part of the BIPA claims because, as you can appreciate, they're expensive to defend. Often, they are in the context of class actions, which has their own set of things that has to be dealt with and potentially uh, implicates discovery and so forth. Uh, Typically, the duty to defend is the one that is often sought uh, a ruling on. And Illinois is a basically what's known as a a four-corner state, which is you look at the pleading, you look at the claim at the lawsuit, and you compare it to the policy. And based on that, um, a you know, there is a determination that would be made to say, yep, there is a duty to defend triggered. And yep, of course, being a Latin term that is used by judges often, um, it, whether there is a duty to defend or not is, is, is typically what happens. Yes, there are lots of loss uh, deck actions where you seek findings on indemnity. And sometimes you do both in the same one. But uh, again, uh, oftentimes it's in the context of whether or not there's a defense obligation. Why are insurers going into court seeking this declaratory relief? If they don't think there's coverage, why don't they just issue a declination letter and be done with it? 
That's a great question. Um, and the answer is because uh, Illinois has this draconian um, rule, doctrine of estoppel. And it is pretty much unique. I mean, there are other, there is a stopple in other states in the insurance context, but Illinois is particularly uh, thorny. Um, and I'd be happy to elaborate on that if you'd like. I think you should elaborate. Then I will elaborate on that, Thanks. Josh. So the Illinois estoppel doctrine basically says, and this, it only applies in the context of policies where the duty to defend is provided for. Again, I, depending on who's listening to this, maybe not everybody um, will know that, but not all policies have a duty to defend. Um, some policies, some third-party liability policies have a duty to reimburse or um, a duty to pay attorney's fees and defense expenses at, you know, at, at some later point. But typically, there is an actual obligation to provide a defense to the insured when they are sued um, or when a claim is brought against them. And what a claim is varies, you know, policy to policy. But, you know, it's easier in the context of litigation because then you've got actual allegations that you're comparing to the policy. All right. In any state, the insurance company has an option of looking at a claim, pairing it to its uh, policy language, doing whatever investigation it needs to do, and then deciding whether it is going to accept the claim in completely and just provide a defense and potentially indemnity, whether it is going to uh, accept the defense under a reservation of rights, uh, which does not involve restaurants. Uh, it's a different kind of reservation, and we can talk about that too if you like. Um, and, or to deny and just say, we don't think there's any coverage. But here's the kicker in Illinois. If an insurance company denies and guesses wrong on whether there was a duty to defend, they are then stopped from asserting their coverage defenses that would have been available under the policy. In other words, they could, be, they could end up covering something that the policy didn't come, contemplate being covered in the first place because of the breach of the duty to defend. So is that a penalty or an incentive for insurers to either accept a duty to defend or go into court and seek a declaratory ruling? Like you discussed. Right. And, and in fact, um, it's, it's interesting because the courts uh, basically have said we encourage insurers to file declaratory judgment actions in order to get an adjudication instead of um, simply denying the claim. But there is a there is a a, a, a quid pro quo. There is a balance to um, the, uh, the doc estoppel doctrine, which is potentially helpful to carriers. And that is. And I should point out that. You can have a duty to defend even if there is no ultimate indemnity obligation. If you've done insurance as long as I have, if you, you wake up at night, you know, hearing in your head, the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. Okay, I mean, we hear that all the time. And it's true. But the interesting thing is, because the duty to defend is based upon just comparing allegations of the complaint, the causes of action, et cetera, against the policy, um, it is, a, it is not only a broader approach, but it is looked at purely in that context. There have been cases in Illinois where a court has said, you know, the carrier was right in the sense that there, was, there is no or will be no ultimate indemnity obligation. But based purely on that four corners approach, a defense obligation was triggered. They denied. They didn't provide a defense under reservation or file a declaratory judgment action. And therefore, they're a stop from raising the very defenses that we agree would have precluded an indemnity event under the policy. That's how problematic it is. Well, what exactly is a reservation of rights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a reservation of rights is basically the insurance company advising the insured that they are not denying the claim, but that they are accepting the claim with reservations to be able to deny the claim in the future, depending upon what happens in that case. 
you reserve on things that would ultimately potentially preclude coverage, such as um, whether there is a, an exclusion that might apply um, to uh, the, the claim because of the nature of one of the causes of action or because of the nature of the damages being sought. So basically what an insurance company does is they are in writing uh, and there are very specific guidelines and rules on the adequacy of a reservation of rights letter where you're basically saying to the insured, okay, um, here's the allegations of the claim. Here are the, here are the relevant policy provisions. Because of these policy provisions, we are reserving our right to deny because, for example, um, punitive damages are sought and our policy excludes punitive damages. So to the extent that there's an award of punitive damages, we ain't paying for that. Ain't, of course, being the, you know, the proper English as well. Um, or um, there are uh, mixed allegations. There's, there's um, claims that are in the alternative. One being negligence and the second being in the alternative, uh, they assert, the plaintiffs will assert intentional conduct. Well, a lot of policies have exclusions for intentional conduct. Um, more often than not, they require an actual adjudication that there was uh, intentional conduct. So you would say in a reservation, um, we're reserving our right to deny to the extent that there is um, any allegation or claim for intentional conduct that is actually um, found and adjudicated. We're not going to cover damages resulting from that aspect of it. That's just a, a small example of the myriad of things that you could reserve on. You can also reserve on conditions to coverage. You know, was the claim uh, timely reported? Um, you know, was there any uh, any breach of some other uh, requirement under the policy that is a condition precedent to the coverage even being in play in the first place? So that's basically what our, what our reservation of rights is. So given that Illinois is the only state in the country that allows for a private right of action regarding biometric privacy issues, it's one of only a few states that has this unique estoppel doctrine what is your prediction for the future in terms of BIPA coverage litigation in Illinois going forward? Um, I see a significant increase in what to expect in coverage litigation, um, in large part because of the um, Tim's decision, which is the decision on the, the five-year statute of limitations applying to all BIPA claims, but also to the White Castle decision, um, which, um, while not directly related to coverage, is still relevant because it raises the stakes on what is uh, the, the number of potential uh, accruing events. And I know you guys talked about that. I enjoyed your last podcast, uh, by the way, um, which raises the stakes because now you've got the potential for a, a ton of accruing events that would be that could be viewed as individual violations of BIPA, which then could lead to a significant amount of damages being assessed against um, someone who uh, utilized the biometric information or collected it. Um, so anytime you raise the stakes on money, you're also, um, you know, that also basically creates the, you know, the spidey sense of having to be more aggressive about deck actions, because now where you might have said, well, in some instances, if the, if the damages aren't that great or if you don't think there's a lot of great coverage issues, you could just de decline and hope you guess right. And if you don't, it may not necessarily make any difference because it would have been covered anyway. In light of this, in the light of the fact that we have this uh, estoppel problem in Illinois, it, it's just going to mean that carriers are going to be, I think, even more aggressive necessarily, not improperly, necessarily, because the law is basically saying you got to do this or else. Now, I do want to point out something. Why is it that the filing of the declaratory judgment action is important? If you provide a defense under reservation of rights 
or you decline but file a timely, uh, with a big T, uh, declaratory judgment action, you are protected against the estoppel doctrine. Basically, even if you if the court disagrees with you, let's say the carrier files a, a deck action to say we don't think there's a duty to defend, court says now nah, there is. With some exceptions, the only consequence of that is you owe the defense costs that you would have paid had you picked up the defense, or you would owe if, if there was a, an indemnity event, if there was a, a settlement or there was a, uh, a judgment, you would owe only that portion of that settlement or judgment that is that would have been covered in the first place. So that's why deck actions are so important, because if an, if an insurance company is faced with questionable coverage and it doesn't necessarily want to provide a defense under reservation because now it's paying money that potentially wouldn't have been covered if a court agrees that there was no duty to defend. The deck action provides that that um, you know bulwark against opening up the um, uh, the coverage defenses or, or losing them and potentially being on the hook for something that they wouldn't have in the first place. So how does the deck action interact with the underlying litigation? Because it seems to me there's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem here because the insured is saying, wait, I, sh- I should have coverage. I thought I had coverage. The insurance carrier is saying, no, no, we don't think that you have coverage. Yet you still have this BIPA class action proceeding to move forward. Right. So, so it, it basically means that the insureds are, in essence, fighting a two-front war. They are not only defending the BIPA claim, uh, potentially without um, an insurance company fronting those monies while there is a pending dispute over coverage. And at the same time, they are defending the coverage action um, or if they initiated it, because a lot of times insureds initiate these too. They want to they want to get an answer on whether or not there's coverage. It doesn't matter, by the way, for estoppel purposes or for uh, protection against estoppel, who brings the action. It's not, a, it's not a race to the courthouse. It can be brought by the insured or by the insurer, as long as if it's brought by the insurer, it is brought timely. Um, but the point being that you are, as an insured, and this is why this is potentially um, problematic for insureds in the state of Illinois with these BIPA claims, especially now in light of uh, the recent Supreme Court decisions, as far as how far back uh, the BIPA claimants can go and also what the potential damages are um, based on the number of violations. Uh, it, it, it basically means that, the, that these insureds are going to be faced with having to fund their own defense, potentially, on these BIPA claims, um, and... Uh, have to defend themselves uh, and fund their own defense against the declaratory judgment action. And and in that instance, you know, they will likely need to have a coverage counsel that understands uh, what the policy issues are, et cetera. Um, so it's not like they can use the same lawyers they're using to defend the BIPA claim. It, it doesn't mean that they doesn't mean that they can't. It just means that that's not normally the way it's handled because usually, you know, us coverage lawyers, we stay out of stuff that isn't coverage. And a lot of times the lawyers that defend um, uh, any kind of litigation, including BIPA claims, don't, you know, sully themselves with uh, with uh, policy and coverage issues. So now you're paying two different sets of lawyers in two different litigations. So it is, uh, it is significant. You know, it is significant regardless of whether or not the insureds ultimately win. Along the way, they have had to um, front a lot of money. And the American rule is that, you know, typically, uh, even if you win, uh, if the insureds win the declaratory judgment and the insurers lose, it's not like you pay them their, the fees for having defended or prosecuted that, uh, that uh, deck action. In other states, that may be a little different, but generally, Illinois follows the Illinois rule. You don't, uh, you know, you don't get paid back if you win. So what happens if a company can't afford to do this? A lot of these companies being sued in BIPA cases are not 
Fortune 50 companies. I mean, these are smaller, you know, mid-market companies, mom and pop shops. They thought that they had insurance for this very reason, that they get sued, that they would be able to avail themselves of their insurance. But now they potentially have this two-front war that they have to address. Is there a world in which they could just say, okay, fine, insurance company, you know, we're, we say, we agree with you. Don't give us the coverage. We're just going to go declare bankruptcy. And then there's no coverage and there's no BIPA claim and the case goes away. So your, 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 your question implicates a couple of different uh, things that I'd like to touch on briefly. One is, um, can an insured say, okay, you know, to the insurance uh, company, you know, either I agree with you or I don't want to fight about it. One of the things that um, can be employed um, either before a, a declaratory judgment action is filed or even after it's filed is that there's nothing wrong with asking the insured, do you want to stand on this uh, this tender of your defense in the BIPA claim? And there are times when an insured um, will say, and not just in BIPA claims, in any, this applies to any claim, but I know that this is really about BIPA, um, you know, they'll say, no, we don't, we don't want to fight about whether there's coverage. We either agree with you, or even if we don't agree, for whatever reason, we would just as soon not have this deck action. We withdraw the tender. And as long as that withdrawal is confirmed appropriately, you know, in writing or somehow, then that takes the insurance company uh, off the hook of having to either defend under reservation of rights or, or proceed with that declaratory judgment action. The other thing that's sometimes employed, and, and I'm seeing this more and more, is insureds are saying, and, and carriers are saying, look, and this gets back to something you asked about earlier, Mary, was how do the, how do the two litigations interact? How do they you know, talk to each other in essence? There are, there are more and more instances now where, where uh, insureds and insurers are agreeing to hold off on fighting about coverage, okay? Entering into a, a, a standstill agreement or a tolling agreement, uh, really a standstill agreement, um, to say, okay, we're not going to fight about coverage right now. We're going to freeze ourselves in this position today. So there's no estoppel problem. You know, they, they, you know we're going we're gonna to pretend like we're taking a, you know, a, a time out. And if at some point one or the other party believes it's appropriate to set aside the standstill agreement in, in favor of you know, addressing the coverage issue, then here's the mechanism how that's going to happen. That's not a bad approach because it stops the insurance company from having to litigate the coverage action or face the potential of estoppel. It gives the insured the opportunity to focus on defending the one thing instead of having the, the two front war, as we talked about. Um, and the focus then is, all right, we're going to defend this thing and we'll put our resources to defending it. And we'll, we'll see whether or not there becomes an event that requires us to have to worry about whether there's coverage. And that can be settlement discussions. That can be a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it will necessarily automatically trigger bringing back or or having the deck action proceed, but at least it gives everybody kind of a little, you know, safe space for a, a, a fixed amount of time um, to not have to fight about the insurance part. George, before we end, I want you to address what you think the commercial reaction is going to be from the insurance industry in light of these two decisions. Are they going to go back to the drawing board and clarify that their policies don't cover BEPA, or is there a market for BEPA coverage? I'm going to answer your question by saying this. I think most insurance companies, depending upon the nature of the claim and the type of policy, um, and I can I know that I probably 
talk too long about other things, but I do want to touch a little bit on, on the general liability coverage, which I think we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast. Yes, there is a market for uh, uh, BIPA coverage, and there are, are some policies that, that do cover, uh, or probably, I should say, would cover aspects of the BIPA claims. Not necessarily everything, not necessarily an award of $5,000, for example, for what is considered intentional or reckless or something along those lines. But I think that a lot of insurance companies, particularly I think GL insurance companies, are going to say, we don't think we need to adjust our policies because we don't think there is coverage under the GL. And that lends itself to a sense of, well, do we want to try to fix something if we don't think it's broke? And do we want to potentially, you know, actually create an ambiguity by virtue of having taken some uh, affirmative step uh, to clarify something when we think that our exclusions right now for, uh, you know, recording um, and, and disclosure or for um, uh, that sort of thing is, is, you know, already applies. And in fact, and this is something I think is important, you know, there have been some recent, there was a flurry of activity in 2022 um, with, and that makes sense. If you think about it, Rosenbach came down uh, January of 19, right? Um, so all of a sudden you started to see BIPA claims coming. There's a little bit of a lag before there's a response to those claims by the insurance uh, companies to say, we need to get in and try to get some declaratory findings here to see whether or not there is um, any coverage. That then requires those cases not only be decided at the trial court level in state court, but also then to go to the appellate court, all right? Or if they're filed in, in the federal court, um, even the trial court opinions, of course, have some, you know, obviously some value. Um, so it was in 2021 and 2022 that these cases started to come down where initially there was some decisions saying that, you know what, um, we don't think they're we don't think, for example, that the employment practices liability exclusion that is typically in AGL coverage applies, or um, we're not sure if the exclusion for recording and distribution um, applies, or the access or disclosure of confidential or personal information. Interestingly, there was a bunch of cases that came down last spring in the federal court um, here in the Northern District of Illinois, which actually came to different conclusions sometimes involving the same insured. Uh, there was this, uh, this company called Thermoplex where there were different decisions involving in different insurers and Thermoplex. You imagine explaining that to your shareholders uh, if, you're, if you're Thermoplex. But the trend, at least you know, from my standpoint, the, the more recent cases that have come down both um, in, in state court um, as well as in the, uh, in the federal courts, is suggesting that maybe the courts are finding that, yes, some of these, at least one or more of these exclusions apply, which means at the end of the day, there may not be any GL or there wouldn't be any GL coverage. I think that's just going to expand. There's going to be even more of these. And I think you're going to see, especially in the federal trial court decisions, you're going to see the Court of Appeals uh, weighing in on these at some point soon, too. Before we let you go, is there anything else you want to cover about insurance or BEPA? I, I can think of 47 things, um, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that to you because this is not the George Manis podcast. I recognize that, at least not yet. Um, <laughs> joke, joke. I think that what is important with regard to BIPA is that there's one thing that insureds and insurers agree on, and that is they're struggling to deal with this statute that some people feel was not really well drafted or better, um, left some questions open, which the Supreme Court and which trial courts and appellate courts have had to try to fill in gaps and deal with. That's the very reason why we everybody was waiting for Tim's, waiting for White Castle. And I wait for White Castle every Friday about 3 a.m., <laughs> although not so much anymore. Now it's more like 10.30. Um, but 
But the point being that insurers and insurers alike agree that the BIPA statute creates challenges that are going to have to be dealt with and borne by both the insureds, these companies, um, by the insurers, and I think will continue to require the court's um, intervention to try to get some of this sorted, sorted out. At some point, there may be legislative um, um, you know, involvement as well. But at least for the time being, I think that BIPA um, is going to continue to provide more uh, questions than it does answers across the board, including with regard to the insurance industry. Well, George, thank you so, so much for all of those insights. We really appreciate it. I did not fall asleep during uh, the insurance commentary. I actually found it fascinating and incredibly informative. So you have fabulous first guest star. I, it was my pleasure and i um, happy to come back anytime and um, continued success with this podcast uh, and with um, and with the dealing with this uh, BIPA thing. Thank you, George. Thank you very much, George. George.